Hi, and welcome to a Voices of Esalen Extended Edition. I'm Sam Stern. I'm pleased to present another installment from the Psychedelic Integration Conference that occurred at the Esalen Institute in the spring of 2019. Today's episode focuses on psilocybin, commonly known as psychedelic or magic mushrooms. The conversation is led by one of the rising experts in the field of mycology, the brilliant, verbose, and oftentimes rather eccentric Paul Stamets. He's joined by neurologist David Presti and child psychiatrist and mental health advocate Ben Sessa. All are introduced here by the conference founder, author and environmentalist Alan Bediner. Together, they thoroughly explore the contemporary landscape of psilocybin mushrooms. The Mushroom Man. Paul Stamets, until recently focused on legal fungi and the amazing features of the mycelium. Paul wants uh, the field of mycology funded to the tune of NASA because of how important it is to understand how we can preserve life on this planet going forward. He was, he was tuned for such a long time on non-psychedelic shrooms, which are magical enough, some people might have wondered if he knew anything about magic mushrooms. He did. But did you know that shrooms build soil and that without it, we wouldn't have food? How about the fact that mushrooms can treat diseases like cancer and tuberculosis, not to mention chronic depression and uh, other mental illnesses? Thank you so much, Paul. Well, thank you all. I want to first acknowledge the indigenous people uh, who settled this land and invited us Europeans and Africans into this uh, place. I want to honor Ralph Metzner, Terence McKenna, and Sasha Shulgin, all of whom were good friends of mine and pioneers and friends to many of you. We, um, we truly are a continuity of knowledge going back you know, through the millennia, literally through millions of years. Um, so I would like to, to a little bit of my background, I grew up in a small town in Ohio called Columbiana, Ohio, uh, near Youngstown, a very straight town, um, didn't have any bars, it had the VFW hall, which my dad would drag to me to when I was a little kid. We grew up in this house and the house was unique because uh, my brother John was a serious scientist. Uh, he established a large laboratory in our basement. Um, and in the laboratory, it's quite remarkable. It had three rows of uh, chemicals, uh, uh, shelves with chemicals on it. We had the um, main radio from the aircraft carrier, the Intrepid, uh, because my dad was in World War II and he, was in the, he got that main radio from the Intrepid uh, 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 aircraft carrier. So we had that in the basement, but my brother John would never let me uh, play uh, w with chemicals, but he would let me, you know, uh, tune in the radio and I listened to, you know, we established a long, long wire, a long wave uh, with glass insulators between trees so I could listen to coded Russian messages, you know. Um, but so it was really cool because I love my brother John. He was, um, to see, he was five, seven years older than me. And um, so I admired him enormously. He, well, then he got accepted into Yale. He went off to uh, Yale uh, University. Um, I still, my brother Bill was still there and he was in the laboratory. He went off to Cornell. And so after those two left, my sister had already gone on to, to Ohio State, then I was left alone in the laboratory in the basement. So like, this was my dream come true. <laughs> Every experiment that said danger did not bring near flame, you know, was my, okay, I'm gonna build rockets. So, um, so I, I still remember hydrogen chloride and magnesium oxide, bam, you know. <laughs> 
Um, so, um, but I grew up in that environment, and my brother John, uh, coming back from Yale as a sophomore, he brought back a book called Altered States of Consciousness. And I, my brother John went down to Mexico and Colombia and tripped on mushrooms, had these amazing stories. I was 14 years old. And he came back from Yale, and he had this book by Charles Tart, Aldous States of Consciousness, University of California, Davis. And, and it was his textbook for his class. And so I asked him really eagerly, can I borrow this book? You know? And John said, sure, fine, you can borrow it, but I need it back. You know, I'm going back to school in two weeks. And so I, I voraciously read this book, and it was about hypnosis and you know, vertigo and ways of inducing Aldous States of Consciousness. And um, my best friend, Ryan Snyder, was, was hanging with me a lot. And Ryan wanted to borrow my book, uh, my brother's book. And so um, I said, Ryan, okay, you can borrow this book, but my brother needs it back. I really, he's going back to school, so I'll lend it to you, but you know, you've got to bring it back. So, so I lent the book to Ryan, and um, a few days and a week passes, and I said, Ryan, my brother's asking for the book. You know, he needs to go back to, to Yale. And um, Ryan kind of avoided the subject, and he kept on avoiding the subject, and I kept on asking him. And then finally I demanded that Ryan says, you know, where is my brother's book? I need to get it back to him. And Ryan sort of sheepishly looked down and said, Paul, I can't give it to you. And I go, why? He says, my dad found it and burned it. I said, your dad burned my brother's book? You know, I was like, oh my gosh. And so I was so humiliated because I had to tell my brother John what had happened. He was furious, of course, and I was the youngest brother, and so I was really ashamed. And then sort of, but I tried to reframe it, and I thought, you know, if this book was so threatening to Ryan Snyder's father and he had to burn it, then I think I found a subject field I really want to explore. <laughs> okay, so, um, and so that really propelled me to be attracted to that which is forbidden. And uh, fungi are forbidden fruit. And John's experience in New Mexico were phenomenal. He told me this story about the federales were coming, so he took niacin, immediately came down with his friends because it was thought back then that niacin would counteract the effects of psilocybin. How many people in this room remember in the 60s and 70s that if you took niacin, it could counteract the effects of psilocybin or LSD? Anybody? Yeah, a few, one, two, three, four. Yeah, it was a very common knowledge back then. So. David mentioned that 13.8 billion years ago, the universe formed um, out of nothingness, perhaps. Um, and then we advanced forward to 4.5 billion years ago, the Earth uh, coalesced out of sawdust. Well, 4.5 billion years ago, 3.8 billion years ago, was the first evidence in the fossil record of an organism, a single-celled organism called LUCA the last universal common ancestor. Oh, hey, Luca! Sorry. So, if you watch Dr. Strangelove, you know what I, why I did that, okay? So, uh, or all hail Caesar. Um, so, but Luca uh, was evidenced in the fossil record at 3.8 billion years ago, the last common uh, ancestor to us all, and it was a single-cell cellular organism. About four years ago in the lava beds of South Africa, the first multicellular organism the oldest one has been discovered. In the lava beds of, of Africa, 2.4 billion years ago was mycelium. The first multicellular organism evidenced in the fossil record by current science today is the mycelial networks. So I believe matter begets life, life becomes single cells, single cells reproduce as strings, strings then fork, Networks are being produced. Networks collaborate. 
And we know that the mycelial network set up the microbiome and the ecosystem. Mycelium is the first organisms that come to land, unified with algae to create lichens that munch rocks. Fungi advance on the, on the land with lichens and algae and, 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 and pairing, and then they crumble the rocks to create the soil lenses on the beaches as life advanced. We go to 650 million years ago, there's a new super kingdom called a Paislacanta, and that is the junction where fungi gave birth to animals, 650 million years ago. This means, folks, that we are descendants of mycelium. Mycelium is our mothers and our, our fathers. So we advance forward to 420 million years ago, the tallest organism on land has been discovered is a giant organism called Prototaxides, 30 feet tall. Back then, it was before vascular plants, there was ferns, but there weren't trees, there weren't flying insects. And Prototaxides towered, you know, 25, 30 feet above the tallest organisms on land at the time were ferns. Prototaxides have been discovered to be a giant fungus, dotting across the landscape, attracting lightning strikes, epigenesis, fertile grounds for bacteria, and these soil lenses began to form we go to 250 million years ago, we were at the PT boundary, the Permian-Triassic boundary of a huge catastrophe, asteroid impact, methane hydrate bursts from the ocean, volcanoes in Siberia. All those things are, could have coincided together. Asteroid impact to create the earthquakes, to create the fissures, to create the methane hydrate bursts out of the ocean. The earth became shrouded in dust. Massive extinction and fungi inherited the earth. We go forward to 65 million years ago, we all know that story, the dinosaurs became extinct. Same thing, asteroid impact, earth shrouded in dust, massive die-off, and fungi re-inherited the earth. We've now entered into the 6X, the sixth greatest extinction event known in the history of life on this planet. And we're losing to the tune of more than 30,000 species per year. We have 8.3 to 9 million species estimated on this planet. 30,000 species per year, you do the math in 100 years, that's more than a 3 million species, about a third or more of the biodiversity that got us here is becoming extinct today. We are in a massive, massive ecological crisis. It is far worse than the vast majority of people realize. We may be literally living in the best of the last of times. This is something that I think about constantly. My heart opens up. I feel connected with the planet, with the cosmos. I feel that we're part of the super consciousness. And as these networks create the microbiomes, more than eight miles of mycelium in a single cubic inch of soil, because the antibiotical properties, they select mutualistic bacteria and other organisms that collaborate, guilds are formed. And these mycelial lenses grow out, creating the microbiomes that give support to the plant communities that give rise to create the debris fields that feed the mycelium. They are deterministic and the downstream populations that want to support the biodiversity because the resilience of an ecosystem is the armamentarium biodiversity of its inhabitants to respond to catastrophia. The more skill sets you have in organisms to respond to a threat, one of those organisms can come up to protect the guild of the, of the multi-species community. So this is really resonating with me in a huge way and has led to my research on psilocybin mushrooms. But it's much more than that. I present to you the concept, we know networks, we all know the computer network and the mycelial network is sort of now very much in vogue. I've been speaking on this a long, for a long time, that the organization of mycelial networks of the computer internet, of brains and your neurons, 
And then you look at, at the organization of matter in the universe, they fall, all follow the same archetype. That's very mycelial-like at different orders of magnitude of dimension. We're enmeshed into these networks. Our permeable skin layers define our body as our corporeal self, but we know that we're in constant biomolecular communication with our ecosystem. There's panspermia occurring all around us at all the time, sharing our microbiomes. Our thoughts are being carried by these organisms as well as ourselves. We make impressions upon the mycelial landscape as we walk, and in the aftermath of our footsteps, these fungi stream behind us. What's really interesting about the psilocybin mushrooms, there's more than 250 species in the genus Psilocybe. About 120 species are psilocybin active. The majority of these species are wood decomposers, and they are hidden in the landscape of the natural world. You can't find the vast majority of psilocybin mushrooms that decompose wood, you cannot find them in the forest. Only until a tree falls, you cut a tree down, you chip wood, then suddenly these mushrooms, these psilocybin active mushrooms spring up. It's almost as if they're calling to us at a time critical that we get the message to be able to change the course in the history of this planet. Now Terrence and Dennis McKenna, and Terrence and I became very good friends the last five years of his life, especially when we started making fun of himself. I really enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> but Terrence and Dennis came up with what they call the stoned uh, ape uh, theory. I disagree with them, it's a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a, is a speculation that is not supported by fact. A theory is a hypothesis that is supported and tested by fact. The stoned ape hypothesis um, goes basically like this. And um, so, you know, Terrence's brother, Dennis, said, said this, that if only 5% of what Terrence says was true, it was amazing. Um, he was truly a genius, a visionary, and way ahead of his time. And this is where I think Dennis and Terrence that came up with the Stone 8 hypothesis were right on. And I want to add to it. Okay, so the mycelium of grassland and coprophilic species are light sensitive. So the stoned ape hypothesis uh, speaks to the fact that when there's climate change, Terence and Dennis speculated that as our primate ancestors came out of the canopy of the jungle and started foraging across the savannas, they would be tracking animals. So what do you do to track animals? You look for footsteps, you know, foot paw prints, and you look for scat, for poop. And so in the subtropics, in the, in the, the scat of hippopotamus, uh, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of ungulates, elephants, zebras, etc., the most prominent mushroom that comes out of that dung is Psilocybe cubensis. It's a bodacious, golden, beautiful mushroom, and it can be quite large. So the majority of primates are grub eaters. They eat maggots. So you're hunting with your clan, you're, you're tracking these ungulates across the prairie, you see footprints, you see scat, and you find these mushrooms. You're hungry. They look edible. I think I'll eat some. I think I'll share it with my mate, my children. They're all hungry. 20 minutes later, <laughs> lift off. So they speculated that was maybe the, one of the reasons why the prefrontal cortex doubled to tripled in size between 200,000 and 2 million years ago. There's no other plausible explanation at a time of climate change than suddenly Homo sapiens uh, developed. And I think the stoned ape hypothesis 
is increasingly from the research that we've been talking about in the past few days with neurogenesis and the hippocampus and the extension of fear response makes sense. That the, the splitting off of the primate tree to create Homo sapiens may have been spurred from the repetitive use of magic mushrooms. I was 19 years old when I wrote my first book, and I was shopping it around. Uh, it was just a manuscript. I spent many, many hours, literally hundreds of hours, at the University of Washington Library, uh, in the science library in the basement, scrounging and looking for any references on psilocybin mushrooms. The majority of which the references had been razored out, and many of other researchers probably remember this. You know, you go down the library, you're trying to find articles on on drugs, and people had razored out the pages. You know, right. Um, but I got, got involved with the University of Washington, Dr. Daniel Stuntz, um, who is uh, one of my mentors. And I was shopping this manuscript around, and I went to Montana Books in Seattle. It was an innovative sort of alternative press, uh, you know, gay publications, you know, some drug books and whatnot. And I was in there shopping my manuscript with the publisher of Montana Books. And he goes, you know, this is very interesting. It's not quite our market, but you, you need a book agent. You know, that they'd be able to market this book for you. Uh, and I, the best book agent I know, personally, is this gentleman named Bill Webb. But I haven't seen him in two years. At the sound of those syllables, the door downstairs opens and the little bell on the door, and in walks Bill Webb. <laughs> you can't make these things up. Bill and I bonded. I was 19 years old, uh, years of age. He was around 70 at the time. And Bill adopted me, and, and I had a difficult childhood, so I was latching on to father figures. He became a big father figure to me. We tripped together many times. Um, Pfeiffer Canyon, uh, Pfeiffer Point on, on Sycamore Canyon Road uh, was a place that Bill and I yeah, yeah, journeyed together. Um, and he was a great, great photographer, well-traveled, a friend of Ansel Adams, Henry Miller, that whole scene here of Esalen. Came to Esalen for the first time by walking uh, from Bill's place, you know, through the pass along the cliffs here. Bill, Bill was a hugely influential person to me. You know, I had a mentor, a very wise man. He had what I call gravitas. Bill Webb said something. You paid attention. At the end of Bill's life, he calls me up, and he tells me an extraordinary story. Bill called up. I said, Paul, listen, you know, I'm losing, I'm 85 or 82 years of age. Um, the worst thing that, what sucks about getting old is losing your senses. I have a blasted hearing aid, it doesn't work. I'm losing my vision and my hearing. You know, and I used to be able to hear the seagulls and the waves on the cliffs of Big Sur, and I can't hear them now without the assistance of this, his words, fucking hearing aid, right? So he's said, but something happened, and I have to tell you. I said, before I tell you this, I want you to agree that you pass on this story. You promise me. I said, sure, Bill. I go, no, Paul. Do you promise me? Yes, Bill, I promise you. Paul, do you understand what I'm going to tell you is so important? I go, got it, Bill. You know? <laughs> okay. He was, so he was tripping on five grams of cubensis, and, um, and his hearing aid was malfunctioning. He, he took it off, and... And he was tripping on Cubensis, and he was on, the, on his deck. Um, oh, wow, he could hear the waves. He could hear the seagulls. And he realized he didn't have his hearing aid in. And he's just blissed out, laying on the deck. And he's laying there, and he's totally in hyperspace and ex you know, existing in the moment, connected with nature. And he hears click, 
click, click, click, click, click. I looked around. What was that, what was that sound? Click, 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 click. And he was really confused. Like, you know, I'm hearing this clicking sound. It's kind of bothering him a little bit. Click, 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 click. And he finally figured it out. He was hearing the footsteps of ants walking past his head. <laughs> True story. And it was residual then for several days he did not have to use his hearing aid. And this, this speaks to neurogenesis and something that I've been advocating to a number of the clinicians who've been doing psilocybin clinical studies is start measuring baseline hearing. 30% of us suffer from uh, hearing loss and tinnitus. And not in that, and Pam is my phys physician friend of mine, and she and I have been talking a lot about this. And we realize in talking to Brian Richards and Roland Griffiths, et cetera, it's kind of intrusive to right in the middle of a psychedelic experience to say, hey, can you hear the sound? Um, so, but it's not intrusive to get a baseline uh, level of hearing. And then from Bill's experience, it was residual for several days. Then post the psychoactive experience, measuring baseline of hearing and neurogenesis. I think that has a, is a very easy metric to add to these clinical studies, so I'd advocate people to consider this. Um, and I do disagree with Andy Weil. Andy was my best friend, but you know, he's like a brother, I disagree with him all the time. Um, Andy you know, stated in a film that's coming out, Fantastic Fungi, that he doesn't think the psilocybin experience would have an evolutionary uh, advantageous uh, effect. Uh, especially on, on agility. And so the other story I want to sh share very quickly, and I'll, I'll turn over the mic here. Um, um, Pam and I were up in, in Vancouver, British Columbia, where she lives, and a very, very famous restaurateur, I decided not to use his last name without, because I want to talk to him first. His name is David, but he owns a five-star restaurant, tremendously interesting man. And he just told us this story recently. Um, he went to a family reunion and northern uh, British Columbia region, way out in the, in the wilderness, a big lodge. About 100, 150 people of extended family came to this reunion. They were drinking, they had a rock band, they had lots of noise. You know, he doesn't really get intoxicated. Um, he went to the bathroom, and um, somebody in the bathroom says, hey, do you want some mushrooms? <laughs> and he goes, sure. You know, so he had a, what we estimated about one to two grams of cubensis from trying to get the description of what we consumed. And he went back and his brothers, you know, were around a, a table all drinking and whatnot. And there's a game that's very popular. Some of you may have played it. It's all over the world. And it's in Asia also. And basically there are, there are nails in a, a pine board and uh, you have a hammer. And you're, uh, you basically have to slam the hammer into the nail with one, uh, with one stroke, then you, sometimes you take a drink in between uh, to see if you can hit, hit the nail. Now, there are very people, how many people played this game? Yeah, a few people, right? It's very, very popular. Um, and so, but this game was unusually difficult because the hammer had the shape of a ice pick. That's the width of it. And it was a headless nail, okay? So this is not, this is a much more difficult. So he came back and everyone's there and they're playing, they're betting with each round and you know, 95% of them are missing it, right? They can't, and you have to slam the nail all the way to the, to, to, to the flush with the pine board. So he came into this, you know, he's now tripping on mushrooms and they're going around. He's never played this game in his life. And uh, they gave him the hammer and, and he looked at it and he said, everything became hyper-focused. <laughs> 
And he looked at it and he went, he picked up the hammer and they're all laughing and joking. Lots of noise, rock band playing. Hyper-focused, took the hammer, kabam. Nailed it, literally. <laughs> Flushed. Right? It was a lot of fun. They went around, they started playing, putting more bets, you know, people were drinking, you know, missing it. They came around to him again. And he looked at it and they're all kind of laughing like, we well, can't do that twice. Bam! Nailed it. <laughs> now they're kind of going, what, what's going on here? Right? And they go around again and again and again. I think the report he did six times or something like that, six times, each time flawlessly hit it. Now we're talking about a, a pick, you know, an ice pick level to a headless nail. So it came around again. Now people are losing it, right? All of his friends are losing it, right? He's piling up this huge pile of cash, right? They're all losing. And so he said, just to fuck with them, he decided, you know, last time around, because people are basically, they're getting out of losing money. They don't have any more money, right? So he lies on it, and the one guy, he was totally freaking out beside him. He said, okay, I'm going to really fuck with this guy. And so he, the last time around, this is the last round, they all agreed upon that. He looked at the guy next to him, he was freaking out, and he goes, bam! <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> so I... I <laughs> These, these are what we call N of 1 studies, right? This is a case report. But both these individuals, Bill Webb and David, have gravitas. They did not make up the story. These stories are true. And so it speaks to neurogenesis. Now, I just want to close with one scientific article um, by a, a neurophysiologist uh, named Catlow, 2013, at the Lieber Brain Institute for Development in Baltimore. This is a sleeper article. I just can't believe that other people are not talking about it. And Rick Doblin, I want you to really pay attention to this. <laughs> this is on microdosing with mice and neurogenesis in the hippocampus uh, and the extinction of the fear, uh, the conditioned fear response. And what they did with these mice, which is particularly fascinating, is that they would have these mice and then they would have a tone, dong. Then 30 seconds later, they'd be shocked with electricity. Four minute interim, dong. 30 seconds later, shocked with electricity. After 10 times, dong. 30 seconds later, with or without electricity, the mice are cowering in fear. They've been conditioned to a fear response associated with a tone. Then they dose them at 10 milligrams per kilogram, 1 milligram per kilogram, and 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. So psilocybin mushrooms are about 1% psilocybin. You know, 10 milligram dose is about 1 gram equivalent. Um, so 1 milligram per kilogram, 70 kilograms, it's 7 tenths of a gram. So basically, 1 milligram per kilogram is equivalent to almost 1 gram. So for liftoff. So 0.1 is microdosing, which James talked about. When they, they, they conditioned these mice, and then they decided to, to dose them at this three doses levels. When they repeated these experiments, they, without the, the shock, but dong, 30 seconds later, the mice anticipated. After three run-throughs, the microdose of the least amount 0.1 grams extinction uh, uh, got rid of the, the condition's uh, uh, fear response where the higher doses took 10 rounds 
to get rid of that uh, fear of shock. So microdosing accelerated this dissociation of the fear response, the conditioned fear response. Higher doses did not. Now, I think why this is happening is that when we blitz out on mushrooms and it's wonderful, you're having these spiritual experiences, well, you need, clinically, you need a controlled setting, you need doctors, you're in a hospital, it's a highly controlled environment. I don't like that. You know, I'm a, definitely a natural products kind of guy. I like tripping on the ocean, big viewscapes into the heavens at sunset, you know, the stars open up, you know, hyperspace. I like that environment. Um, I, think it, I think it's much, much better. Um, but what I think why microdosing works is because neurogenesis is occurring as the cells reproduce. When you flood the receptors with a massive dose of psilocybin, more is not necessarily better. And you have it just for, the, the periodicity is extremely limited, it's a limited window of four to six hours. When you're microdosing over time, you're allowing those cells to reproduce. So I think microdosing gets you into a much less expensive uh, arena of individuals, you don't have to be in a clinic. You're at thread, sub-threshold doses of intoxication, and it has a better effect and a lot more mileage. Think if you could reduce MD, MDMA by a factor of 10, how much more affordable it will be, and you have, don't have to be in a clinical setting. So I refer you to that. I populate a website, it's non-commercial, it's called mushroomreferences.com. I populate it for uh, physicians and researchers. It's several hundred pages long now. I curate it once a month. And you can uh, go into mushroomreferences.com. You can look up lots of these references. Um, it's just pure science. That's, that's all it is. So check out mushroomreferences.com. I'm a victim of Google Scholar Alerts. I read these things voraciously. I pull out the articles that I think are most interesting. So these articles that I've mentioned, and then I'll talk about Lion's Mane later on. I think so. Anyhow, that's, that's my baseline introduction to, to psilocybin microdosing. And my two friends, David and Bill Webb, I want you to take their stories to heart. These are true stories. And we should capitalize on this and explore what the significance of these are. Yeah, thank you. Ben Sessa is in the house. Ben has a successful practice as a psychedelic psychiatrist in London and curates my favorite conference every year at the Old Naval Academy in Greenwich, just outside of London. Breaking Convention. What a great name for it, too. <clears throat> Scientists, uh, writers, and researchers give presentations and present papers, as well as poets and artists share their work. Breaking Convention is itself a cultural change agent, as well as Ben and his awesome sense of humor. I'm delighted that he made the long trip over here to teach. Thank you, Ben. Thanks. I think it's terribly unfair to make me talk about psilocybin mushrooms after Paul. <laughs> what do I know? Um, okay, so the three areas about psilocybin that interest me are, firstly, it's extremely low um, toxicity profile and its high level of safety and then that that triggers a whole interest and discussion around its uh, legal status and why it's a schedule one class a drug is preposterous it does not make sense whatsoever it's a very very safe compound i read somewhere that to get anywhere near the ld50 which is the uh cutoff point at which we measure the toxicity of drugs 
Um, to get anywhere near the LD50 level for psilocybin, you have to eat 17 kilograms of dry mushrooms. You know, nobody, that's like a pile like this. So firstly, it's the, the, the low toxicity. That really interests me, and that brings all the legal issues in. The second area that really interests me is the anthropological discussions around the impact that psilocybin mushrooms have had on human development or not, um, because there's a lot of theories, uh, the stoned ape theory, the influence of mushrooms in the Druid church in Europe and Stonehenge and there's as many myths as there are known facts around this. So there's a lot of interest um, within in Central and South America, there's no doubt of the anthropological impact of psilocybin, psilocybin mushrooms in religion and culture. In Europe, there's, there's some skepticism and I'd welcome some debate on that. Um, the third area that interests me the most and that I've had the most um, uh, attention with is the work we've been doing at Imperial over the last 10 years, which uh, a series of multimodal imaging studies comparing uh, three classic psychedelics, so psilocybin um, and then LSD and now DMT, these studies that are going on. And what's interesting about that work is we're learning the similarities between these three apparently very similar biological agents in terms of the 5-HT2A receptors, partial agonists that we've talked about a lot in the last couple of days. But we're also mapping the cartography of the differences between these three, these three compounds. Um, and it, it's a harder thing to do than you'd think. Um, that a lot of people would say they can tell the difference between LSD and psilocybin, um, but a lot of experiments show it's not always that obvious, and a lot of people think they can, but they get it wrong. So what are the differences between LSD and psilocybin subjectively? and uh, neurobiologically. I think DMT stands out a bit more. It does have, in terms of cartography, some particular unique subjective experiences of going to this other place and meeting other beings, which is somewhat more unique to DMT than it is for psilocybin and LSD. But um, what I found interesting about doing that work and being able to directly uh, see that for myself. Um, one of one of the anecdotes I would share with you is we do all of these experiments with um, intravenous, um, so it's all it's all injected into the vein LSD, DMT, and um, DMT and LSD. And what I what was really interesting, and it was this was a chance finding that came out of it, was that intravenous psilocybin is like smoking DMT. It comes on very rapidly. It comes on in about 60 seconds. So it's the psilocin, the, yeah, so, it, and, it's, and it's immediate. And it's, it goes in over 60 seconds and your baseline, and then 60 seconds later, you're tripping more than you've ever tripped before in your life. Um, very, very rapidly, and it lasts about 20 minutes and wears off. Um, by about 45 minutes, you're back down to baseline. And that's really interesting because intravenous LSD um, behaves very like the oral dose. It takes about 40, 45 minutes. It's a bit faster than the oral dose, but essentially it's a 30 to 45 minutes to come on, and it lasts about 8 to 12 hours to come off. So it's, that's taught us a lot about the chemistry of these compounds. Um, nausea with IV? Can we at least assume that? Well, um, Interesting. Judy's asking, is there less, less uh, nausea with IV? I mean, the, the reason that we do IV for, with pharmacological studies um, 
a few reasons. There's a whole concept of what's called the first-pass metabolism, which is the way in which um, anything coming in through the gut passes through the liver, um, which has a detoxifying effect to uh, then allow whatever compounds you want to get into the blood to be safe. So, And because that whole experience, both, as Paul's saying, the, um, the microflora within the gut and also the liver metabolism is very different in all people. When you're delivering a drug for a pharmacology study, you want to make sure everyone gets as near as possible exactly the same dose, which is why we use IV, because you have a, it's much more standardized that you take away some of those other, those other factors that can alter the, the actual dose that gets into the brain for individuals. So that's why we do IV. And then it, and then it comes down to what, how long does it take to get through past the blood-brain barrier, and then how long does it take to then have its effect at the receptors. So you're trying to reduce as many confounding variables as you can, which is why you choose IV. But the gut is doing a lot more than just being a, a very crude barrier for toxins. It's actually having an effect on the way the drug works and how much is absorbed. And again, the difference between you could take oral synthetic psilocybin compared to oral mushrooms, which have a whole host of other things in them as well. So the point about the IV in the pharmacology experiments is you're trying to reduce as many variables as possible and just study the pure compound that you want to look at in the brain. Um, but you then do miss out on other aspects, um, uh, subjective psychological aspects that are different from the other forms of the drug. So that, that's a different sort of study. Um, uh, there's other anecdotes I can share about those experiences um, with the different compounds there. But those are the three things that interest me the most, the, um, the safety and legal status, the anthropology of, um, of, these, of psilocybin in human cultures, and um, the differences and similarities with the other classical psychedelics. David Presti is a neuroscientist and clinical psychologist and professor of neurobiology at UC Berkeley. David and his partner, psychiatrist Christy Panic, chief of psychiatric services at UC Berkeley, have been offering the one and only workshop at Esalen for years that focused on specific psychedelics and the nature of their effects. Perfect to have you here. Thank you so much for being part of this. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a privilege to be on this panel with you guys. Uh, I'm really interested in, uh, well, for example, the stories you told. This is uh, <clears throat> like, what do we make of Bill Webb's synchronistic entrance uh, just at that moment? Uh, and was it in any way connected with the work you're doing now? Uh, <clears throat> and uh, because you know, one of my hypotheses about <clears throat> getting to the next level of understanding about the nature of mind and who we are in this physical reality uh, is that things are deeply interconnected in a way that we're discovering physically, but haven't really kind of figured out how to, how to weave in the mind realm. So can our studies with psilocybin, with mushrooms, with other uh, psychedelic medicines be informative in that vein? And, and so since research is really expanding at this moment, uh, it, it's, it's a nice thing to look out for, just as you can build in a component where you test perhaps an enhanced auditory perceptive ability. You might be able to build in a component that looks for some kind of enhancement of synchronicities or precognitive uh, uh, dreams or notions. 
or clairvoyant or telepathic things, these things that are not taken seriously in the scientific mainstream, but for which there's an enormous amount of data, uh, empirical data, both in the scientific literature and in the world. And of course, they're taken seriously by all cultures everywhere in the world, except those who have been seduced by our belief that we've figured it all out and uh, those things can't happen in our in our world. I have this book called Mind Beyond Brain. I mean, Mind Beyond Brain is by definition non-local, right? I mean, it's it transcends, I, I could, I mean, more accurately be, would be Mind Beyond the Physical Body Brain Organism uh, because we are not our brains. We are our brains plus our body plus maybe other things. Uh, so that idea was developed in that book in the context of this conversation between Buddhism and science that I've been involved with. But it, it, it transcends that and, and applies to everything. Uh, and there, real, there are not any viable theories right now that give any kind of details. And I think that most of the, uh, the connections with quantum theory, probably all of them actually, are, are fall short, fall well short. I mean, some of them are very novel and interesting and cute. But I, I, I believe that quantum physics gives us the, the clue, the hint, that there is something profoundly weird going on in our connection between mind and what we call the physical world. And that's called the measurement problem in quantum physics. And after a hundred year, nearly a hundred years of quantum physics right now, the people who actually spend their careers thinking about that do not agree with each other. They argue incessantly in the journals and at meetings, and, and, and there's been really virtually no progress made uh, in that issue. Uh, Bohr and Einstein argued about it until the end of their lives, and they were smart guys. Uh, so uh, I don't believe it's going to be soluble in the science, in the scientific framework, in the, in the framework we have right now that is our explanatory model for reality. Uh, but I think it's a clue that whatever the next framework is and some kind of expanded conception of the world uh, that may be more revealing in that. Uh, so while microtubules and all of that are really interesting, I think they're they're doing something profoundly interesting inside cells that we don't understand yet. I doubt that they're the explanation for consciousness or something like that. Um, so there's there's all of that, and there's lots of data. Well, first of all, this idea that the that the brain body is at least in part some kind of receiving transceiver that's connected to a larger matrix the mind matrix or some kind of matrix of information, uh, there is nothing, absolutely zero uh, empirical data that conflicts with that. That's a completely consistent idea uh, that is a viable hypothesis to explore that would allow for the explanation of a lot of things that we can't explain right now, like synchronicities, like out-of-body experiences that folks have when they have cardiac arrest sometime where they make accurate uh, 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 perceptions of things that they couldn't possibly see unless they really were. That's completely inexplicable uh, so, uh, within our, our current framework, but it's completely consistent with some kind of you know, transceiver model. So uh, in many ways, what I'm saying in that realm is no different than what William James said 125 years ago. He articulated it really well, and then his ideas got lost with the juggernaut of behaviorism in, the, in 20th century psychology. 
and it was re rearticulated by people like by like Aldous Huxley famously in the Doors of Perception and Albert Hoffman in his own writings uh, and it's completely consistent with every single spiritual tradition on the planet so so it, it's worth looking into and I and for me it, it's a place where we can begin to build dialogue and bridges with religious and spiritual traditions which is a huge impediment in our modern world you know it's a, it's this battle of the worldviews that really underlies a lot of uh, issues like climate change and and uh, and any number of other political things and so forth so uh, uh, it's worth expanding upon in some way we are just in the infancy of understanding all of these different compounds and how they affect people individually and differently and it we you know we've we've spent a lot of time talking about the set and setting and the psychological characteristics and the personality traits of different responses to different psychedelics um but there is a lot more work to do in terms of like you say carrier typing people's genetic codes um you know you can almost imagine the day when you're queuing to go into the rave and you give a little blood sample with a prick on the finger and they say yes for, for you, madam, it's going to have to be ketamine followed by a couple of joints, <laughs> but don't touch the mushrooms. And for you, you know, you're going to have this response. So, and this is, this is prevalent through all of psychopharmacology these days about bespoke drug regimes based on individual um, personalities and individual characteristics. So there's a lot to do. And at the moment, we don't know enough about that. So we kind of focus on the, the things we can change, the psychology, the set and the setting. And we try and, like uh, Marty says, start low, go slow. And that's the way you find your own personal drug profile of the ones that suit you and the ones that don't. Um, I just wanted to go back also to your question about the concept of um, the, the, the relationship between mind and brain and the concept of spirituality. And I was just saying to David on the way over to breakfast this morning, there's an aspect of this whole concept of psychedelic spirituality that's an anathema for me. It's like, let's imagine the scenario that... We have to imagine this scenario, right? That there is no spirituality, there is no God. We are purely materialistic, physical beings, and that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of a complex nervous system. Now, that's a very disappointing thing for lots of people to hear, but let's imagine that scenario. But let's imagine a scenario that these drugs nevertheless subjectively make us think that, and that's just one of the things the drugs does. It makes a non-spiritual, in purely materialistic, physical, complex nervous state, have the subjective experience of cosmic oneness, spirituality, God, and it's just one of the side effects of this compound on that brain. Now, if that is the case, that's very disappointing for a lot of people who enjoy spirituality. Um, but what I, and I want to just finish this with a clinical, um, why I feel this from a clinical point of view, and these are the words, and it's actually the name of a wonderful um, Alan Watts book, Does It Matter? And I don't think it does matter from a spiritual point of view, whether there is a God or there is Allah or there is a Jewish faith or a Christian faith or a psychedelic spirituality or an ayahuasca spirituality. None of these things I don't think matters. What is does matter to all humans everywhere is that it appears that we need a spiritual dimension in our lives to be full humans. And whether we get this through LSD or magic mushrooms or through Christianity or through Islam or whatever we choose, it doesn't really matter. And also, like David says, we may never know the actual neurobiology of consciousness. 
because by definition, we're using our own brains to measure it, which is nuts. So it doesn't matter. But what does seem to matter from a clinical point of view, that we need to find a way to connect with our own version of spirituality, whatever we call it, even if it's a delusion. Because without that, we don't have a full sense of being a human. And from a clinical point of view, it's a very powerful tool. So my friend Louis Schwarzberg is here, and I've been doing a lot of work with mycelium and the intersection with insects. And Louis asked me one day, Paul, how can you help the bees? And through a series of journeys and waking dreams, I had an epiphany. So I believe nature is all connected. We all get that. We all get the same message. But the mycelial um, model of interconnectedness has driven my research. And now knowing that blue light stimulation creates psilocybin, psilocybin could be an antiviral, blue light stimulation creates shikemic acid, leads to Tamiflu, then I was looking at what's happening with bees. And when Louis asked me this question, I had this, this experience of bees coming to my garden and moving all over these wood chips. I had two beehives, and for day, day to night, for 40, 40 days, I had a continuous convoy, bees my beehives to my wood chip bed that spread the mycelium and sucking on the little droplets coming out of the mycelium by moving the wood chips. I, that sat, sat in memory. Then a series of other events, and when Louis asked me this question, it, I was, you know, I went to bed and I'm laying in bed and I had all these results of the BioShield biodefense program. I received several patents on new antivirals and I had this epiphany. Oh my God, I, know, I think I know how to save the bees. And a friend of mine was collecting psilocybe cyanescence. And he said, Paul, the weirdest thing happened. I went to my mushroom patch. It was covered with bees. And I tried to pick the psilocybe cyanescence, and the bees attacked me. They said, no, we want the mycelium. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's really interesting, too. So I started putting some things together. And I've had a huge breakthrough. And I want to share it with all of you. Um, I have discovered a way of preventing bees from dying off from colony collapse disorder. It is a huge crisis right now. More than 50% of the beehives commercially are dying each year. All wild bees are infected because when the viral mite injects viruses into bees, the bees visit a flower, they leave the viral particles on the flower, the bumblebees come, wild bees come. They're all infected. All bees in the world now have the deformed wing virus. It is considered to be the death knell of bees and biodiversity. I am extremely concerned Pam and I have been here for the past three days. There's hardly any bees in the gardens here. What the fuck? I'm real, I mean, this is really concerning. You should be covered with wild bees right now, and we see very, very little. Colony collapse is a threat to worldwide food biosecurity, 30% of all your food. A bee uh, pollinates 1,000 flowers a day. They used to fly for nine days. Now they're flying for four days. And so when you see bees on a flower, it's the last few days of their lives. So I had an epiphany. What if I use the same extracts I use in the BioShield Biodefense Program to be able to reduce viruses and bees? So I called up the University of California at Davis. I talked to the chief bee scientist there, and I realized I made a fatal mistake in our conversation. You never talk to another scientist by saying, I had a dream. <laughs> No, thanks. <laughs> so I went to Washington State University, talked to Steve Shepard. I was at TED. 
I kind of leveraged my TED connection there. I said, you know, you can look all this up. You can Google my name. You can see the BioShield program, my TED talk, et cetera. And he said, after 20 minutes, he could go nowhere else. Okay, we fast forward. We just published in Nature and Scientific Reports. Um, I'm the primary author. My other co-authors are USDA virologists, Washington State University uh, 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 entomologists. We're in the top 1% of 261,000 articles published in Nature. A copy of it is over there. It's open source. You can read it. We reduce viruses by putting the extracts of our, uh, into the sugar water that beekeepers feed their bees. 1%, 10 mils per 1,000 mils, 1 mil per 100, per 100 mils. Reduces the viruses of bees in our report 45,000 to 1 with one treatment in 12 days and doubles our lifespan. So... This is extreme. Now, the, the truth be told, we had one result that was 200 million to one, but it was such an extraordinary result. Our p-value of significance for the scientists here, it was only p uh, less than 0 0.05. Our p-value of significance are 0 0.00014. That's what swayed the, the Nature articles, the, the Nature peer reviewers. So I've been awarded now 40 patents on this, and. The patents have been awarded in the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, 19 countries in Europe and Eurasia. I was awarded a patent in Russia. It's open source for Indonesia, South America, Mexico, uh, the vast uh, regions of the world. So I didn't want to open source this initially because Monsanto would greenwash. They would take it. It was my invention. This is my life's work. And so, okay, I wanted to figure out how do I scale this? This can be scaled all over the world using indigenous polypore mushrooms that grow in the trees. Anybody can do this. And any of you can practice this without patent infringement. There's no patent infringement unless you commercialize. You wouldn't have your iPhones or your droids or your cars without rewarding the patent inventor for 17 years and then it becomes open source. So, I have an invention I want to share with you. It's not for sale, but there are thought leaders here and early adopters. And what I found out and discovered is bees are maze runners. They'll run a maze. And so with our extracts, I've created a bee feeder that is now with 1% of our extracts with sugar water. Anyone can do this to help the native indigenous bees. Now we have a plug and play systems we have a solar panel, UV emitting lights, that then the bees are attracted because they can see below 400 nanometers of light, we can't. And you look at UV, the UV pictures of flowers, you can see landing strips, you know, where the, the, they direct the bees directly to the flowers. So then we have LoRa, uh, web-based transfer of data, we can count the number of bees coming in through the gate, to the portal here. And then it can upload into the cloud, and then we can create a bee community of people worldwide. Creating a website where I will have the website where the earth will sparkle every time a bee comes in and out. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, I want to monetize this in order to create a revenue stream to be able to give it away. You have to be profitable to be charitable. That is something that's a real big theme for us of us uh, who have businesses. If you, you give it all away, you're not profitable, it's not sustainable. So how can I make this sustainable? So I thought to myself, smoked a joint, <laughs> tripped on mushrooms, 
And then I thought, you know, I can come up with a new cryptocurrency. A cryptocurrency because hay is dependent upon bee pollination. So if you're in a hay field in Nebraska and you see there's very few bee visits, very low pollination, yield of hay is down. The Chicago, you know, a grain market, you could then bet on the put that the market is going to, the price of, of hay is going to go up because of lack of pollination. You upload it into the cloud, you have a cryptocurrency called the fungo. <laughs> that can be traded then on the short. And then every bee monitoring station can be the first crypto that's not tied to some fantasy of greed and, you know, underground economy, but tied to an ecological metric and benefit. So I'm, um, <laughs> this is... So my dream is to go to Spain and Portugal because I have no doubt that the psilocybin mushroom and mycelium extracts will be super powerful, but I can't do that in the United States. Um, so the idea is we're going to have everyone that buys one, we're going to give one away to somebody else in a developing country. We're going to pair people with somebody they don't know in Nigeria or elsewhere. If you don't agree to be paired, sorry, we're not going to sell it to you. That's it. You know, we have plenty of people. We have 7,000 people who have signed up so far. And today, we just opened up the portal. It's called bemushroomed.com. You can enter into that portal. You can sign up. It'd be an early adopter. We can only produce 20,000 of these the first year. We need about 20 million of these in three to four years. So two million, hopefully, the year after. This is something that's actionable economically scalable and sustainable, ecologically rational. Everybody can be involved in saving bees without having to be a beekeeper. You put this outside, you monitor it, and the bee, you can see we have great videos of how this works, et cetera. So this is my mission. And the reason why this is important for the psychedelic community is the following. Bees are the number one bridge issue between liberals and conservatives. The number one bridge issue Let's talk about saving the bees at Thanksgiving, not about Trump and Hillary. And you build a bridge of communication about biodiversity, natural remedies, and our extracts are more potent than a single molecule. I can now make the argument and sustain it academically that natural products offer a broader armamentarium of benefits than a pure pharmaceutical because the cascade of receptors are activated and that synergy of molecules, that's what you evolved to be in a synergy, you know, with all sorts of molecules that you're testing through your body and you elicit an immune response. It's not due to an antiviral molecule. It's a concert of activities that we have not discovered the mode of action. So I created a funding source. I'm not gonna mention our product line. Most of you people know what it is anyhow. But we made displays in Whole Foods, vitamin shop, everywhere, all over the country with QR codes to donate money to Washington State University for saving the bees. I got a report about six months ago. I was shocked. But our efforts of our company with this QR code in saving the bees has raised over $5 million from consumers using the QR code in their iPhone, going by, clicking Apple Pay, click, click, five bucks as they walk by. It's that fast that you can do that. So this is Citizen Scientists Unite. If we bring this idea of natural products to the conservatives who are concerned about food biosecurity and bees being so important for farmers and for the economics of cultures, 
then I think this is a gate to open up the conversation about psychedelics. Because it means that the natural world in which we've evolved can give us benefits heretofore un not understood. We are enmeshed in the foundation of mycelium. The implications think I hear are vast. The same extracts that reduce viruses that infect people, pox, H5N1, herpes viruses, reduce viruses that harm birds, H1N1, pigs, H3N2, bees. I think I've discovered something fundamental to the foundation of nature. We are walking upon the immunological networks of mycelium in the ecosystem and they influence our health. If we do not come in common with the purpose of mycelium in the biosphere, we will lose the opportunity of being voted on this planet. I believe there's a universal, the, the United Organization of Organisms, otherwise called uh-oh, <laughs> and we can be voted on the planet or, or off the planet. That vote's happening right now. But this is a deliverable, actionable solution. I'm sure we'll have starts and stops. We need lots of help on this, especially from the tech community, because the amount of digitalization of all this data is super important. And the cryptocurrency thing, I filed a patent on that. I don't know where that's going to go. I'm not an expert on cryptocurrency. But I think as a cryptocurrency, it's got legs. You, you're helping the bees. You have a cryptocurrency. You can finance it. Then we can give the money away to MAPS to be able to do all this research. I think this is just the beginning. We are now just understanding that networks in nature, you know, give us support, give us health. We support these networks. We have resiliency. We have the ability to evolve. And I think now is the time for the next paradigm shift in the evolution of human consciousness. Thank you very much. For listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Psychedelic Integration Conference was produced by Alan Bediner in conjunction with Dream Mulek. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world. <laughs>